Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History, Episode 31, Rise of the Sun Culottes. In the last episode, we examined the early military setbacks which shocked France at the start of the Revolutionary War. We also explored the radical remedies employed by the Brousseauans as they sought to stabilise the situation and rectify their deteriorating political position. In this episode, we're going to take a step back from the main narrative and examine the development of a new revolutionary force which would come to dominate the revolution. What force am I talking about? Well, the Parisian sans-culottes. In this episode, we're going to dive deep into just who were the sans-culottes, what they wanted, and how they interacted with the various political factions. We'll also tie this into the main narrative and explore some contentious debates while doing so. However, before we get into it, I do have some news. I am speaking at this year's Intelligent Speech Conference. Intelligent Speech is an online conference dedicated to connecting the best independent educational content creators with their listeners. This year's conference takes place on April the 24th, 10am Eastern Time or 3pm London Time. I will be appearing alongside David Crother of the History of England podcast, as well as Liz Covart of Ben Franklin's World and Rudyard Lynch of What If Alternative History. Additionally, there'll be around 40 other great content creators. There will be 24 hours of content in four simultaneous streams, so there's a lot to discover. I'll be announcing later just what I'm speaking on, but it will be a presentation followed by a Q&A session, and I think it will likely focus on King Louis' flight to Varennes. Tickets are $30, and they're currently available for $20 as an early bird special. Furthermore, you can use the coupon code GREY, that's G-R-E-Y, for a further 10% off. Tickets are available online at intelligentspeechconference.com, and I've put a link in the show notes and on greyhistory.com. Of course, I couldn't possibly start an episode without thanking everyone who's been doing their bit to help grow Grey History. As always, a special thank you to everyone who is supporting the show on Patreon, including our new partners who joined in February. Thank you to Dovidas and Jonathan, who joined as Noble Citizens, Mikhail, who increased their sponsorship and who is now a patron and philosoph, Robert, for joining as a national hero, and Cynthia, who joins Jeffrey, as one of the show's extra generous champions of the people. A reminder that a big way that you can help the show is by donating a small amount via Patreon. Donations help me cover my costs, of which there are quite a few, as well as help me purchase new sources and get the show closer to more frequent production. 
To existing Patreons, I am extremely grateful for your support and thank you. And for those listening who don't yet sponsor the show, please consider doing so. You'll get access to a range of bonus episodes and episode extras. Also, a big thank you to those people who have left reviews, particularly written reviews, as well as those who have reached out and contacted me. I appreciate that not everyone can afford to help sponsor the show in these crazy times, but leaving a written review and telling people about the podcast are other great ways that you can help. So, with nothing further to cover, let's get into it. Welcome to Grey History, Episode 31, Rise of the Sun Culottes. I want you to list things which just belong together. Not necessarily things that have to be paired together, but when paired, they're just that much better. For me, when I think of this list, there are some real obvious candidates. Peanut butter and jam, George Lucas and Star Wars, international sporting bodies and rampant corruption. It's not that any of these things can't exist without the other. It's just that they aren't the same when separated. There's many things that could be paired with revolutions. Charismatic leaders, impassioned speeches, patriotic songs, and some pretty bizarre deaths. But I would argue that revolutions, true revolutions, just aren't the same without large popular demonstrations. The vast majority of revolutions in modern history, whether successful or not, have been accompanied if not fuelled, by mass movements. And this is an interesting thought if we bring ourselves back to mid-1792, to a time during the French Revolution, when, well, despite all the nation's troubles, there seems to be a real lack of revolutionary crowds. This hasn't always been the case. To set the scene, let's cast our minds back on the many protests and insurrections of the early revolution. Starting with the Day of Tiles revolt in Grenoble, throughout 1788 and 1789, violent, bloody and sizeable popular demonstrations were, well, common. After the Day of Tiles came the bloody rebellion riots in Paris. And those riots were followed just a few months later by the storming of the Bastille and a city-wide insurrection. Following the Bastille, large swathes of the nation were involved in the unrest during an event known as the Great Fear. And after the Great Fear came the Great March on Versailles, often referred to as the Women's March or the October Days. With the King hauled to Paris, and with the National Assembly secure, 1790 saw less disturbances. The price of bread had normalised, 
mitigating a key factor that was often a vital catalyst for violent demonstrations. That's not to say there was no unrest in 1790, with some notable disturbances outside of the capital. But until mid-1791, Paris was relatively quiet, certainly compared to the tumultuous events of 1789. Things changed, however, in the summer of 1791. Numerous demonstrations flooded the streets as the king's flight to Varennes turned the revolution on its head. As calls for a republic arose from the cobblestones, these demonstrations culminated in the bloody Chape de Mars massacre. Following that atrocity in July, the people of Paris were, once again, relatively quiet. The red flag of martial law seemed to have done its job. At first glance, the streets appeared peaceful, at least compared to the significant demonstrations of the previous months and years. However, like a fast-flowing river, the calmness on the surface masked turbulence underneath. Driven by a variety of destabilising social, political and economic factors, significant changes were underway that were having a tremendous impact on Parisian society. Many of those factors we've already discussed, but they included inflation, commodity shortages, religious and political tensions, the high price of bread, belief in conspiracy theories, and a genuine, at times all-consuming fear of the vengeful return of the old regime. Harnessing these factors to help drive these changes were an assortment of political associations and entities which we discussed way back in episodes 16 and 17. Back then, I referred to these groups as the government's rivals for power. Political clubs, revolutionary societies, the popular press, and the city's municipal sections were all, once more, extending their influence and rising, quietly, to power. To recap the events of mid-1791, you'll remember that following the Chape de Mars massacre, an event known as the Tricolour Terror occurs. In the final months of the National Assembly, the Fionns, having split from the Jacobins, led a reactionary push to try to, from their perspective, stabilise the revolution and solidify the constitution of 1791. For some historians, one of the key criticisms that they level against the leaders of the tricolour terror is that they failed to go far enough. Despite the ferocity of the initial crackdown, the reactionary movement failed to permanently rein in the radical clubs and societies of the capital. Furthermore, it failed to muzzle the most extreme elements of the press, and it failed to curtail the city's sections, which were becoming increasingly autonomous and assertive. Thus, here, in what we're about to discuss this episode, are the chickens coming home to roost. Although the city's revolutionary elements were initially suppressed by the reactionary actions of the national and local authorities, many of the organisations which rivaled the established order were permitted to continue to exist. With time, political clubs and societies sprung back to life. The popular press, having been attacked by the Fionns, 
resumed its activities. The city's more radical sections refound their voice, and if you remember, the city's 48 sections were only created because their predecessors, Paris's 60 districts, had themselves found their voice a little too well. As the dust settled in the wake of the tricolour terror, and as the Legislative Assembly focused on matters relating to renegade priests and hostile emigres, some political elites and leaders of the revolutionary left took the opportunity to use these societies and associations to pursue their own political objectives. Objectives which often reflected their more democratic and at times populist ideals. Harnessing the power of the clubs, the press and the Parisian sections, a variety of influential left-wing revolutionaries pushed their democratic and at times radical agenda. These revolutionaries by no means formed one united front. Brissot and the Girondins sought to expand their influence, and so too did their rivals Robespierre and the Montagnards. Joining them in the public sphere was Danton, Demolin, and associates of the Cordelier Club, as well as popular journalists like Marat and Hebert. While all these revolutionaries did not have the same level of success in garnering support for their agenda, many of them did find a willing audience in a particular cohort of Parisians. Just as importantly, this audience had something they wanted to say back, particularly as this cohort became more radicalised and revolutionary. So, just who am I speaking about? Well a group of people which history has come to know as the Sun Culottes. Now, if you're familiar with the revolution, you're probably thinking to yourself, finally, after taking his sweet time and 30 episodes, Will has finally got to the Sun Culottes. And if you're not familiar with the French Revolution, you might be asking yourself, wait, the Sun who what's? So, Now that I have at least some of you more puzzled than when you first read the name of Elon Musk's child, let's dive into the famous and infamous sans-culottes of the French Revolution. There are a range of things that we need to discuss as it relates to the sans-culottes, so the agenda for the rest of this episode looks something like this. Firstly, we're going to cover just who were the sans-culottes. Secondly, we're going to cover some of their key grievances and demands. Thirdly, we'll then explore how the various revolutionary factions responded to this radical policy agenda. Fourthly, we'll then tie all this back into our main narrative. And finally, we'll explore one of the key contentious debates surrounding the Sankulots. Because believe me, there is nothing not controversial or contested when it comes to these revolutionary protagonists. So, just who were the sans-culottes? Literally, the phrase sans-culottes is French for without breeches. In the 18th century, it was fashionable and common for men of high society to wear knee breeches. I've put photos on Instagram and in the show notes, 
But if you're feeling lazy, just imagine fancy shorts which end just below the knees. These breeches, or culottes, were considered fashionable by not just the aristocratic court, but also by many members of the bourgeoisie as well. And in fact, this wasn't just a French thing. Google an image of the American Continental Congress, and, well, now all you'll see is breeches. Breeches, however, were not the most practical of clothing choices for those who actually did something more than push paper for a living. Artisans, labourers, craftsmen, factory workers, and other members of the Third Estate did not wear breeches. Ultimately, it was a garment that wasn't practically suited for their sweat-inducing labour, and in a time of high bread prices and crippling inflation, being fashionable was hardly a justifiable expense. Hence the term sun-culottes was a, well, quite literal term for workers, urban artisans, labourers, craftsmen, journeymen, etc, etc. It was a very broad term for people who, in some way, shape or form, laboured with their hands for a living, and most importantly, wore trousers while doing so. Hence the term sun-culottes, the literal translation being without breeches. Now, there is a fierce debate amongst historians about how one should view the sun-culottes and whether the group is a social category, a socio-economic class if you like, or a political group. We're going to dive into this debate at the end of this episode. So in the meantime, we're going to follow the lead of historian Timothy Tackett. According to Tackett, the Sunculots were originally conceived as a social category, but in time, the term evolved from a social one into a socio-political one. Through this evolution, the term Sunculots became a catch-all term for radicalised citizens who identified with the people. This popular front, as historian George Lefebvre puts it, consisted of both men and women who sought to push the radical agenda of the populist revolutionary left. It's because of this evolution of the term that one can find many examples of prominent sunculottes who were not workers at all. In fact, far from it. No small number of sunculottes were business owners, and a few prominent leaders were not just well-off, but wealthy. On the other side of the spectrum, some members of the Parisian poor also gravitated towards the radical agenda of the Parisian sunculottes, despite themselves not necessarily heralding from the artisan class. Thus, the sunculottes consisted of a wide variety of individuals. Labourers who worked for a wage, self-employed artisans and craftsmen, men who owned small businesses, as well as people who owned little more than the clothes on their backs. Despite this diversity, however, the iconic sunculottes, the stereotypical sunculottes, the sunculottes which were idolised in propaganda and speeches and posters, that image of the ideal sunculotte remained tied to the artisanal origin of the term. To give you a flavour of what that idolised version of a sunculotte looked like, 
This is how an anonymous writer from 1793 describes the famous revolutionary protagonists as the bitter European war dragged on. A sans-culotte, you rogues, is someone who always goes about on foot, who has not got the millions you would all like to have, who has no chateau, no valets to wait on him, and who lives simply with his wife and children, if he has any, on the fourth or fifth story. He is useful because he knows how to till a field, to forge iron, to use a saw, to roof a house, to make shoes, and to spill his blood to the last drop for the safety of the Republic. And because he is a worker, you are sure not to meet his person in the cafe, nor in the gaming houses where others plot and wager, nor in the theatre, nor in the literary clubs, where for two so, which are so precious to him, you are offered Gossard's muck with the chronic and the patriot Francais. In the evening, he goes to the assembly of his section, not powdered and perfumed and natterly booted in the hope of being noticed by the female citizens in the galleries, but ready to support sound proposals with all his might and ready to pulverise those which come from the despised faction of politicians. Finally, a sun-culotte always has his sabre well sharpened, ready to cut off the ears of all opponents of the revolution. Sometimes he carries his pike about with him, but as soon as the drum beats, you see him leave for the Vendée, for the army of the Alps, or for the army of the North. So, the Sankulots were, first and foremost, workers. They knew how to forge iron, roof houses, make shoes, and sew clothes. They did not live in chateaus, they did not employ servants, they did not spend their money, of which they had little, on the theatre or books or iced sugar-free vanilla lattes with soy milk. No. What they did do, however, was live a virtuous, simple and relatively austere life, at least in the idolised propaganda of the time. According to the rhetoric of the popular press, the Sankalots were patriotic guardians of the revolution often spilling the blood of the nation's enemies or labouring to produce the resources required for the aforementioned blood spilling. As the radical journalist Hebert stated in 1793, the sunk were those who make the fabrics in which we are clothed, who work the metals and manufacture the weapons that serve to defend the republic. To add some final colour to who the Sankalots were, it's perhaps worth discussing something they were certainly not. And that was aristocratic. But importantly, their definition of aristocratic was far more expansive than the definition we've been using. Historian Eric Hazen notes the contempt shown not just for the former members of the nobility, but for those members of society which were seen as contributing little to the nation. The sans clearly detested the aristocrats, 
but by this term they included not only the former nobles, but also the upper layers of the former Third Estate. On the 21st of May, 1793, a popular orator from the section du Mal stated that aristocrats are the rich, wealthy, merchants, monopolists, middlemen, bankers, trading clerks, quibbling lawyers, and citizens who own anything. Considering that the majority of both the National and Legislative Assemblies were comprised of those very types of people, primarily quibbling lawyers who owned something, well, you can see why trouble was brewing on the horizon. Donning red liberty caps and increasingly arming themselves with pikes, in the spring of 1792, this group of radicalising Parisians started to make their voices heard far more forcefully than they had in the months following the Champ de Mars massacre. The increased vocalness of this growing political force can be attributed to a variety of reasons. Firstly, time had passed from the tricolour terror, and many of the repression's leading faces had since left office, including Bailly, Lafayette and Barnev. Secondly, the myriad of problems facing France were having a real, hunger-inducing impact on the people of Paris. Inflation, commodity shortages and high bread prices were exactly the kind of issues that forced grumbling stomachs onto the streets. Finally, after the war broke out, the threat of counter-revolution and the belief in conspiracies added a sense of urgency to the people's demands. Furthermore, this urgency and the severity of the nation's problems helped to further justify the extreme measures advocated by the Saint-Culottes. So, what were the demands of the Saint-Culottes? Well, there's two primary grievances that we need to discuss today. The first was political in nature relating to their exclusion from the democratic process of the new revolutionary regime. The second was economic in character. Inflation, high bread prices and the scarcity of basic commodities were fast transforming frustration into unrest. Violent unrest, to be more precise. As a result, the Sankalots had a list of demands seeking to remedy these hunger-inducing miseries. If we start by focusing on the political grievances of the Sankalots, then the most pressing grievances centred on the distinction between active and passive citizens. The Constitution of 1791 disenfranchised not only women, but a large proportion of male citizens as well. As you'll recall, only those deemed active citizens were allowed to vote in elections. To be an active citizen, one had to pay an annual tax bill equivalent to three days' worth of labour. While this distinction between active and passive citizens had always been controversial, it was increasingly unjustifiable by the spring of 1792. After all, the Revolutionary War was requiring sacrifices from all French citizens, and just like at the Bastille and the Chape de Mars, Passive citizens were actively defending the revolutionary order, and yet 
had little to show for it. In short, the Sunculots wanted a vote. Well, at least they wanted a vote for the men amongst them. Although pushed by some early feminists, women gaining the right to vote was never adopted as a key demand of any of the major political factions. Instead, universal male suffrage was the immediate goal of the revolutionary left. Another political demand of the Sankulots was the introduction of more radical direct democracy, including the ability to recall and replace unsatisfactory public servants. We'll explore this idea in greater detail another time, but in short, the Sankulots wanted the ability to participate in policy decisions on a far more regular basis. At a municipal level, the Parisian Sankulots wanted their local sections to be able to recall their delegates to the municipal government. Furthermore, they wanted the ability to hold votes in the sections, and then force the section's representative in the municipal government to vote that way. This approach would fundamentally change the nature of the democratic system. Instead of voting infrequently in elections for representatives, one would vote frequently on a myriad of large and small policy issues, and then communities would instruct their official representatives on how to vote on their behalf. If they failed to vote as they were told, well, they would simply be recalled and replaced. Such a system would have scared the living daylights out of many members of the original National Assembly. Abbe Siez, who largely authored the existing process, explicitly avoided all hints of direct democracy when he overwhelmingly favoured representative democracy for national elections. If you recall, in national elections, active citizens didn't even get the right to vote directly for deputies. Instead, active citizens voted for electors, and electors then voted for deputies. Thus, the demands arising from the clubs and the streets were almost the polar opposite of the status quo. The Sankalots were currently excluded from much of the political process. And not only did they want to be included in that process, but they wanted to radically overhaul it. Specifically, they wanted a more direct form of democratic government. A form of government where the people didn't just elect electors every couple of years, but instead actively and regularly participated in the political process. The grievances and demands of the Parisian Sankulots were not just centred on political issues. In fact, economic grievances were just as, if not more important, particularly at a time of high bread prices. As discussed in episode 24, the winter of 1791 and 92 had been particularly challenging. The food shortages, which had been so influential in 1789, had returned due to a terrible harvest in parts of the country, and this had the effect of creating severe living conditions across large swathes of the nation. Normally, these food shortages would have been problematic enough, but the shortages created by Mother Nature were compounded by human factors. For starters, the war negatively impacted the distribution of food, 
as horses, wagons, grain and other important resources were requisitioned for the army. Furthermore, the internal grain train had been liberalised in recent years, theoretically allowing grain to be shipped to the areas within France where it was needed the most. This, however, caused its own problems. In areas of severe shortages, it was perceived that speculators and counter-revolutionaries were deliberately withholding grain to either maximise profits or destabilise the revolution. In areas of surplus, the departure of grain was resisted by the local inhabitants, at times violently. They feared that shortages and accompanying sky-high prices would soon affect their communities as well, should they let the grain depart. In such an environment, unrest was increasingly common. According to historian Ippolite Tain, in the final months of 1791, riots already accompanied almost every market day in the departments surrounding Paris. Farms were invaded, cellars pillaged, mayors and government officials were attacked as the people demanded bread. For the Parisian sans-culottes, the solution to these numerous economic problems was simple. Firstly, price controls should be introduced to ensure that basic commodities, including grain, could not be sold above an affordable price. Secondly, inflation should be contained by forcing the assignat to be accepted at face value. Finally, harsh penalties should be distributed to anyone who undermined liberty by hoarding or speculating in grain. Since these actions were causing death, it was only reasonable to implement the death penalty for those found guilty of committing such a crime. These policies were by no means easy to implement. Firstly, most deputies and government officials had long resisted the idea of price controls, believing them to be inefficient, unworkable and contradictory to the goal of ensuring that commodities moved from places of surplus to the areas where they were needed most. Secondly, forcing the assignat to be accepted at face value would be no small task. The assignats had depreciated significantly. The paper notes were, after all, backed by the nationalised land of the church and other property seized by the revolutionary regime. If the revolution failed, so would the assignat, and with the revolution's future success far from guaranteed, it was only logical that the revolution's currency should reflect this uncertainty. By early 1792, the assignats had depreciated by nearly 50%, and two prices for goods were common, one price in assignats and the other in physical coins. With war only adding to the uncertainty of the revolution's future, enforcing that the assignats were accepted at face value would be nearly impossible. Finally, the proposal to severely punish those who were found guilty of hoarding grain was, in the eyes of some, contrary to the Declaration of the Rights of Man. And it's here that we start to come across the complications which arose from inalienable rights that alienated each other. As discussed in episode 14, the Declaration of the Rights of Man was full of contradictions. 
For example, if someone had the right to own property, then they also had the right to buy and hoard grain. Grain was property, after all. However, hoarding grain could starve the local populace, which would infringe on their right to liberty. How to manage these conflicting natural rights was not defined, since they were meant to be inalienable. That is to say, these rights could not be taken away, they could not be restricted. How then do you tackle inalienable rights which were alienating each other? This was the sort of conundrum that the moderates feared when the debate over the Declaration occurred back in August 1789. Opponents of the Declaration had argued that defining rights without limitations was a recipe for trouble. And here is where they get to say, I told you so. The measures advocated by the Sankalots were radical, and their proponents knew it. On the 24th of January, 1792, a delegation from one Parisian section lobbied the Legislative Assembly to implement much-needed reform. Appealing to the Assembly about the high price of sugar, the delegation stated, We find that the vile provision brokers and infamous capitalists tell us that the Constitution has established freedom of commerce. Can a law exist in conflict with that fundamental law which is expressed in Article 4 of the Declaration of Rights? Liberty consists in being free to do all that is not harmful to others. And in Article 6, the law may forbid only actions harmful to others. Now we ask of you, you who are our legislators and our representatives, is it not injuring others to hold back foodstuffs of prime necessity in order to sell them at prohibitive prices? The calls for action could be much less polite. In an environment where many believed that food shortages were occurring not because of poor harvests, but due to hidden plots and nefarious schemes, the advocates of more radical remedies were not always so measured in their requests for reform. Which I think is somewhat understandable if you genuinely think the nation is starving because greedy speculators are hoarding grain or wicked counter-revolutionaries are sabotaging the distribution of basic commodities. Two days after the delegation we just heard from, a spokesman representing a different Parisian section made a much more forceful case for the extreme solutions which were increasingly favoured by the city's workers. We hereby denounce all provision brokers of every kind. Even the most necessary foodstuffs are in the hands of these murderers. They talk of private property, but is not their property a crime against the nation? Does not the tale of so much misery arouse your indignation against these devouring beasts? By decrying those who hoard grain as murderers and beasts, 
one can see the evolving radicalisation of the Parisian workers. With their backs to the wall, the sunculottes favoured outcomes over theory. What good is the efficiency of free market economics or the sanctity of property if one is starving, hungry and unable to care for the people they love? As historian Norman Hampson writes, The sunculottes also differed from bourgeois politicians in that they could not afford to view price fluctuations with the detachment of an Adam Smith. Faced with a sudden rise in prices, they demanded a scapegoat and a prompt remedy, and arguments of economic orthodoxy carried little weight against their own privations and the suffering of their families. So, not only did the Sanculots advocate for dramatic, indeed revolutionary, political reforms, but they also advocated for significant economic reforms as well. In fact, advocated is perhaps too gentle. Demanded would be a more appropriate word. By the spring of 1792, the increasingly disastrous war heightened the perceived necessity of reform. The setbacks on the frontiers escalated tensions, magnified fears, and amplified angst. The threats of hunger, foreign armies, and counter-revolutionary conspiracies collectively energised the Sankulots as they demanded radical changes. As summer arrived in 1792, France was a nation gripped by unrest. Not all of this unrest was driven by the Sankulots. The shortages of grain spurred violence amongst the peasantry, while pockets of France saw disturbances linked to either the refractory priests or their ungodly replacements. Nonetheless, all of this national unrest was very different to that which had gripped the country in 1789. While shortages of bread and basic commodities had played a significant role in those historic disturbances, in 1792, the anger of the people was directed towards a new target. No longer was the people's hostility directed towards the outdated and unjust governance of the old regime. No. Now it was the new regime which bore the brunt of the people's discontent. It was the new order which seemed incapable of delivering its promises for a better world. Historian Gaetano Salvamini writes, It was impossible to ignore the nature of these outbreaks. They were very different in origin from the disturbances of July and October 1789, for they were directed not against the old regime, but against the shortcomings of the new it was no longer a question of conflict between the middle classes and privileged, but one between the proletariat and the owners of property. As it relates to Salvamini's last line, a conflict existing between the proletariat and the owners of property, I will explore the historical debate around classes and class conflict later this episode. 
Instead, I want to focus on Salvamini's statement that these demands were impossible to ignore. Indeed, they were. With the war situation deteriorating, with religious unrest growing, with bread riots increasingly common, these violent and chaotic disturbances needed to be addressed. So, what would the Legislative Assembly do about it? More importantly, what would Jacques Brousseau and the Girondins, aka the Brousseauans, do about it? It was the Brousseauans which held the most influence over the Assembly, and so it was the Brousseauans whose opinions were of most immediate importance. As a side note, I am going to start shifting from using the term Brousseauans to using the term Girondins. I've been using both interchangeably because both were used that way at the time, and initially Brousseau was the faction's leading figure. However, over time other individuals will grow in importance, and by the time we reach the convention in late 1792, I would like to retire the term Brousseauan completely. Anyway, I digress. Some of the political demands of the Sun Culottes were not particularly controversial. The distinction between active and passive citizens enraged the revolutionary left. And so, on this issue, the Girondins and the Sun Culottes were aligned. This was less the case on the issue of more direct democracy. While not a champion of representative democracy to the same extent as, say, Abbe Sies, Brousseau was no crusader for direct democracy either. Many Girondins were wary of empowering the fickle and temperamental nature of the people. However, there was a real and considerable gulf between the Girondins and the Sanculottes on matters relating to economic policies. In particular, the Girondins were not in favour of price controls. Furthermore, the economic platform of the Sanculottes became more radical over time, and it started to include demands like the redistribution of excess property. This radicalisation merely widened the divide further. The reason why the Girondins were reluctant to support the calls for price controls on basic commodities were numerous. Firstly, many Girondins subscribed to the principles advocated by the physiocrats. Physiocracy was one of the most popular and credible economic theories of the time, and some principles of physiocracy still underpin modern capitalism to this day. The economists of the late 18th century embraced the principles of the free market, including laissez-faire policies, which shunned economic interventionism, such as subsidies and regulations. Thus, many Girondins were sceptical of the merits of regulating the price of goods, including grain and other basic commodities. Secondly, commodities, be it grain, sugar, salt or other necessities, were a form of property. Property was guaranteed and protected in the Declaration of the Rights of Man. The government did not have the authority to arbitrarily seize rightful property, nor dictate to the owner what they could and could not sell that property for. Furthermore, a key tenet of physiocracy was the necessity of private property. As a result, 
the Girondins were ideologically disinclined to infringe on the rights of property holders. Finally, the deputies associated with the Girondins primarily represented communities from departments quite some distance from Paris. After all, the name Girondins derived from the fact that many of them came from the department of Gironde. Gironde being on the southwest coast of France, incorporating the city of Bordeaux. Funnily enough, Brousseau, the most famous of the Girondins, did not come from Gironde. But nevertheless, many of Brousseau's associates did originate from provincial France. The reason why this is important is because the departments that many Girondins represented had not experienced the same level of unrest which had been driven by the scarcity of bread. Therefore, these deputies did not feel the same level of compulsion to intervene with dramatic price controls, as their constituents weren't championing the policy. In fact, many Girondins remained fixated on other factors which were threatening the peace in their communities, namely refractory priests and counter-revolutionary conspiracies. Taken together, this combination of theory, principles and geographic coincidence meant that the Girondins were hardly ready to embrace the radical economic demands of the Sanculottes. The two groups could see eye to eye on some key political reforms, but on the economic front, this was not the case at all. Critically, it's here that the Robespierreists and the Montagnards started to outflank their rivals within the Jacobin Club. The Montagnards were by no means anti-property, and many deputies and associates of the mountain were sympathetic to the same laissez-faire economic principles that were embraced by the other revolutionary factions. However, unlike the Girondins, Robespierre and other Montagnard figures were at least willing to contemplate some form of price controls. The adoption of these principles is probably linked to the fact that many influential members of the pro-Montagnard camp, including members of the pro-Montagnard press, happened to live in the most radical and sans-culotte-friendly sections of Paris. To be clear, many Montagnards did not embrace the entirety of the economic agenda of the Sanculottes, but they were at least sympathetic to the plight of the people, and they were willing to infringe on economic orthodoxy in order to relieve the people's suffering. Thus, unlike the Girondins, the Fillons, and the Royalists, the deputies and public figures who were associated with the Montagnard faction were soon able to credibly lay claim to the title of being the only major political movement that was truly listening to and advocating for the people. This was important because Robespierre and Brousseau had already been battling for months over who was the true champion of the common man. It was this bitter and personal feud, combined with the vicious debate over the necessity of war, which had driven such a huge and eventually unbridgeable divide amongst the Jacobins. In aligning themselves with the Saint-Culottes, the Montagnards outflanked the Girondins. 
having correctly predicted future disasters of an unnecessary war, the Montagnards had a proven track record when it came to policy. Basking in their I told you so glow, this faction was offering the populace the solutions which they themselves were advocating for. Thus, while the Brissoans dominated the assembly and the ministry, it was now the Montagnards which held the most sway over the revolutionary masses of Paris. And as we have seen throughout this revolution, the revolutionary masses of Paris had the potential to be a significant force. Now, to be clear, I want to take this opportunity to reinforce the fact that when we're talking about the Girondins, the Montagnards, the Fillons, we're not talking about established institutionalized political parties in the modern sense of the term. I have deliberately used qualifiers such as many Girondins or public figures associated with the Montagnards because we should not think of these political factions as unified distinct blocks which operate with a central point of command. At no point in time did Robespierre and other Montagnard leaders get in a room, smoke a cigar and say, you know how we could really stick it to those traitorous Brissoans? Let's support maximum prices for grain. No, it just didn't happen. Yes, deputies and public figures did gather in clubs and salons to debate ideas and formulate plans. But it was a far cry from the operations of modern-day political parties. There was no opinion polling, there was no focus groups, there was no campaign apparatus systematically testing which oversimplified slogan got the best reaction. The fact that we are dealing with what is in a sense proto-parties can be seen in something as simple as the language used at the time. The Brissoans were also called the Girondins and the Girondists. The Montagnards might also be labelled the Robespierreists. The Ministry of March 1792 might be called the de Maurier Ministry, the Roland Ministry, the Brissoan Ministry, the Girondin Ministry, and even the Ministry of the Saint-Culottes. My point here is that when we are discussing the actions of political groups in the revolution, particularly at this point in time of the revolution, keep in mind that what binds people are friendships, associations, geography, ideology. What divides people is not just opposing ideas, but rivalries, personalities, disputes between your associates and their associates. We're a long way from modern-day political parties, and the actions, names, and policy development of the various revolutionary factions reflect as such. Much of what was occurring at this moment was developing organically, rather than through some centralised committee which was plotting ways to make an institutionalised party more electable at the next polling day. So, now that we've covered who the Sankulots were, what they wanted, and how both the Girondins and the Montagnards responded to their demands, let's tie all this back into our main narrative. In the last episode, the Girondins responded to the setbacks on the frontiers with three key policy initiatives. Firstly, a new crackdown was launched against the refractory priests. Secondly, 
the king's constitutional guard was dissolved. Finally, it was proposed that a new force of 20,000 volunteers was summoned from the provinces to help protect the capital. You may remember that Robespierre and other Montagnard leaders resisted this proposal, and hopefully this position now makes a little more sense. By June 1792, Robespierre, Marat and other Montagnard figures derived much of their political power through their influence and sway over the Sanculottes. The creation of a new force in the capital was a direct threat to their power. The Girondins controlled the ministry, the mayoralty, and debatably the assembly, and so this force would have been under their command. Furthermore, this force would have been made up of volunteers from around the country, and which group of influential deputies primarily heralded from and represented the departments? That's right, the Girondins. Associates of the Montagnard faction had no interest in empowering the creation of a new force which could be used to violently suppress the Parisian sections and neighbourhoods which were so influential to their own power. Interestingly, the rising activity of the Sanculottes may have helped convince the Girondins and the Assembly more broadly that the new force was worth summoning. By June 1792, with setbacks on the frontiers, with radical remedies proposed, and with the increasingly vocal movement of the Sanculottes mobilising in the streets, the nature of the revolution was undergoing a significant transformation. In particular, the restlessness of the Parisian masses made clear the growing radicalization and militancy of the populace. Historian Simon Sharma declares that the truly radical phase of the revolution was now at hand. Historian Georges Lefebvre goes further and suggests that the unrest across the nation and the radical demands of the Sanculottes eventually drove the Girondins into taking the path of conservatism. That is to say that, with time, the Girondins would follow the well-trodden path of many revolutionaries and transition themselves from progressive patriots to despised reactionaries. Historian Lefebvre writes, With greater insistence, beyond newspapers claimed that more than the constitution was threatened and alarmed the bourgeoisie with the spectre of agrarian law. The Girondins too were frightened. On June 3, they officially honoured the memory of Simonou. Simonou was a mayor who was killed during a bread riot. They, being the Girondins, were responsible for the existing political order. Their members held cabinet positions, were closely tied to the bourgeoisie, and expressed full devotion, Roland especially, to economic freedom. The appearance of Sanculottes scared them into taking a path that was to lead to conservatism. But for the moment, danger of counter-revolution occupied their full attention. So, on the eve of summer in 1792, the nation of France was once again confronting a myriad and seemingly ever-growing list of problems. Inflation, 
commodity shortages and high bread prices created meaningful hardships for the common people. Refractory priests and counter-revolutionary plots were either undermining the authority of the new regime or seeking to overturn it completely. As it became apparent that the war would be more threatening than trivial, the deep divisions between the country's factions were reinforced and amplified as accusations of treason and betrayal flew from one group to the next. Finally, as the armies of Europe mobilised, so too did the people of Paris. In particular, those without breaches were hungry and discontented with the undelivered promises of the old regime's replacement. A new Parisian powder keg had been created. And in our next episode, we'll see the first of many explosions. Before we wrap up, I would never forgive myself if we didn't explore at least one of the many controversial debates surrounding the sun culottes. This is grey history, after all. As a matter of historiography, that is to say, the study of history itself, I want to investigate the considerable debate surrounding the term sun culottes. As mentioned previously, the term sun culottes came to have a political flavouring, a way of grouping all those who identified with the people and pushed for a series of radical and populist policies. This popular front consisted not just of artisans, craftsmen and journeymen, but labourers, factory hands, small business owners and members of the poor. This diversity of the sun culottes helps to fuel a huge and broad historical debate surrounding the social composition of the group and whether the sun culottes should be viewed as merely a political grouping or a social grouping as well. What do I mean by this? Well, were the sun culottes merely a political coalition or were they their own unique socio-economic class? In the early 20th century, some historians, particularly those of the Marxist school of thought, emphasised the social aspects of the sun culottes. To summarise in a few sentences what I'll eventually no doubt end up dedicating an entire episode to, many Marxist historians view the revolution through the overarching prism of class conflict. To these historians, the entire revolution can largely be seen from the perspective of one class battling another. Originally, it was the aristocratic class which challenged the king in 1787 and 1788. The Assembly of Notables, the Revolt of the Parlements, the refusal to assist in the budget crisis without first winning the establishment of an estates general. This initial conflict was followed by a battle between the bourgeoisie and the aristocrats in 1789 primarily over who controlled the newly summoned Estates General. Over the following years, that struggle continued, and eventually, the privileged orders slowly and consistently lost their privileges, their property, their prestige, and ultimately, their power. Finally, this class conflict evolved once more through the Popular Revolution of 1792 and 93 a series of events which we have not yet reached in the show. Leading this popular revolution was 
the people, and in particular, the Sankulots. This framework of interpreting the events of the revolution leads many Marxist historians to define the Sankulots as their own social group. While noting that the Sankulots lacked a well-developed class consciousness, they were, essentially, their own class, albeit a far more incoherent class than those which we're familiar with today. Historian Albert Sabul states that the Sankalots were a sort of proto-proletariat, and to many Marxist historians, the term Sankalots had a distinct social aspect to it. They were their own social category, just like the bourgeoisie, the aristocracy, and the peasantry. Before exploring competing perspectives, however, I would like to revert back to historian Salvamini's line, where he stated that a conflict existed between the proletariat and the owners of property. It is noteworthy that some historians, such as Albert Sabul, are keen to state that this was not a conflict between the haves and the have-nots. While the Parisian mayor, Petion, did state as such, historian Sabul reframes this conflict. Instead, Sabul proposes nuance to the debate over just what drove the radical economic policies of the Sankalots. Was this the haves against the have-nots? Not precisely. As far as the Sankalots were concerned, artisans and shopkeepers belonged to the propertied classes. More particularly, the friction was between those who believed in the notion of limited and controlled ownership and the partisans of total ownership rights, such as were proclaimed in 1789 or the opposition between those who believed in controls and taxation, and those in favour of economic freedom. The opposition between consumer and producer. So, Marxist historians generally view the revolution through the overarching framework of class conflict, and in this situation the Sankalots formed their own class or at least a proto-class of some form. They were a distinct and unique social group, one which doesn't exist in modern times. This manner of interpreting events was incredibly popular in the early and mid-20th century, but over time, many revisionist historians have taken issue with the idea that the Sankalots were a unique social group. Many argue that the term is only political in nature, and did not designate a social or economic class. Revisionist historian Francois Furet claims that the term sans is impossible to define in socio-economic terms. Historian John Boscher goes further. So various were the sans in background and occupation that they did not form a social class any more than the Jacobins did. In fact, they cannot be socially defined at all, which is why we must fall back on their own name for themselves. According to some revisionist historians, what united the Sankalots was not a common social background, but a common political platform. Hence, they argue that the term Sankalots is a political one, just like the terms liberal, conservative and populist 
which we still use today. In rejecting the idea that the Sankalots made up some sort of social class, these historians can thus explain why the term Sankalots is absent from French history both before and after the Revolution. Indeed, the term Sankalots is lacking in French dictionaries from the 17th and 18th century. And more intriguingly, the term sans-culotte is relatively absent from the Revolution of 1848, which results in the Second French Republic. No doubt I'll need to do a whole episode on the historiography of revisionist historians as well. But the key point here is that these historians argue that what united the sans-culottes was politics. The political nature of the term is why you could have artisans, labourers, business owners, the poor, all united under the same umbrella to achieve the same set of radical policies. Historian Richard Cobb also notes that in viewing the term as a political one, it helps to explain the federal revolts which plunge France into civil war. Cobb argues that socially, it's hard to distinguish between those who conducted the revolts and their Parisian enemies. However, by looking for political distinctions, rather than social ones, an observer can see differences between the combatants of the various urban revolts which hit France in 93 and 94. Where do I fall on this issue? Well, I deliberately led with historian Timothy Tackett's description of Saint-Culotte's being a socio-political term, a mixture of the two. While I'm sympathetic to much of the very well-researched work of prominent revisionist historians, I note that there is still a lot of grey here, particularly because terms evolve. For example, the term aristocrat was clearly once a social term, but over the course of the revolution it became political as well. One would be described as aristocratic, despite not having a single drop of noble blue blood in their body. Any member of the bourgeoisie could be and would be labelled as aristocratic if it appeared that they favoured the king, the clergy, or any other position which was linked to the traditional order. Furthermore, I note historian George Lefebvre's observation that if there was no social component to the Saint-Culottes, why was there a distinction made between them and the bourgeois Montagnard Jacobins who would come to champion much of their policies? Why not just call the deputies of the mountain the Saint-Culottes, or the Montagnard supporters in the streets Montagnards as well? The implication from Lefebvre being that there was a social distinction between the bourgeois deputies and their non-bourgeois supporters. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that those supporters were a unique social group themselves, adding to the grey. In short, there's a lot of ambiguity here. But I'm sympathetic to Tackett's position of describing Sankalots as being a socio-political term and thus one that's not purely political. In saying that, if push came to shove, I would emphasise the political component of the term. Ultimately, there remains considerable debate surrounding everything to do with the Sankulots, and given their importance in revolutionary events, this debate is part of the reason why the French Revolution remains full 
of grey history. What remains less grey, however, is the events of June 1792. Once more, the French Revolution will be paired with popular demonstrations. And we have arrived at the Journée of the 20th of June. Thank you for listening to episode 31, Rise of the Sun Culottes. Next episode, King Louis will be receiving some unexpected visitors. And this unanticipated arrival will have meaningful consequences. This week's episode extra for Patreon supporters is a little different. A this week in the French Revolution sort of item. We'll be exploring the escape of King Louis's aunts and examining how their journey differed from the king's failed escape from Paris. Now, if you've enjoyed today's show, please consider sponsoring the show on Patreon. The episodes are taking more than 40 hours to produce, and by donating a dollar or more per show, you can greatly help me produce more grey history more often. You'll also get access to a range of exclusive content. Furthermore, please remember to tell your friends about the show, and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, a written review would be fantastic. As always, thank you for listening, stay safe, and have a great day.